Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. Thanks, Susan. Uh, Good morning. My name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And as you can see here, we've come to the book of Malachi, which is the end of the Old Testament. Never again to return to the Old Testament. I'm obviously kidding, but uh, but it's been a long series. We started last September, uh, and so uh, a lot of things have happened uh, since we began Uh, the series on the Old Testament, Uh, and we've come to Malachi, the last of the minor prophets and the last of the books of the Old Testament. As we've been working our way through the prophets, we've been asking this question, uh, what do we learn about God and his character and his work that will give us confidence to face the trials and the times of confusion that we inevitably experience? Because, see, there's ultimately two ways to live. There's a so-called bottom-up approach to life, and that causes us to view God through the lens of our circumstances, because we start with our circumstances. But the other way of looking at the world is Christianity. And the Christian is someone who lives from the top down, that is, they view their circumstances and what is happening uh, through the lens of God's character. Their starting point is God, his character, his work, his word, past, present, and future. And what we've learned Time and again throughout this last series in particular on the minor prophets is that in order to endure, in order to remain faithful in the midst of hardship, you have to have right theology. 
It matters what you know and believe about God because that's what grounds you in and sources you with truth, which you need at all times, but particularly in times of hardship and struggle. And truth guards you from fear, it guards you from unbelief, it guards you from error, and as well as just guarding you from plain, just plain insanity, right? So what does the book of Malachi have to teach us? Well, I want to give you some background, uh, just a little bit, to understand where he's coming from, where what he is uh, saying is coming from. And of course, we only picked selections, uh, and there's a lot of different ways you could go in the book of Malachi, uh, but as you see there in the outline, and as I'll get to in a minute, uh, I've decided to kind of go after this one particular theme or tack. The book's written roughly 80 years uh, after the prophets Haggai and Zechariah have encouraged the people to rebuild the temple. So at this point, the temple is rebuilt. Israel, however, is still a lowly province in the Persian Empire. And it's a far cry from the glory days that the people long for. And so slowly but surely, disillusionment and disappointment set in. And they begin to doubt that God is really going to, as the prophets have said previous to now, restore their fortunes. You hear that over and over as you read through the prophets. The days are coming. In the latter days, I'm going to restore your fortunes. They could hear those echoes, and yet what they look around and see is not that God is restoring their fortunes. They become skeptical of his promises, and that in turn produces indifference to his commands And they end up with these incredible moral lapses. And you read about them. If you start in chapter 1 and read all the way through the book of Malachi, it won't take you too long, maybe 10 or 15 minutes. I encourage you to do it. You'll see some of those things. Mixed marriages, corrupt priests, not tithing, uh, just to name a few. And so in light of all that, we're going to take a look at three things. And you'll see them there in your outline uh, that uh, we provided for you in the worship folder. Uh, these three things. First, a bottom-up way of looking at the world, and consequently, a bottom-up way of dealing with suffering and doubt fundamentally begins, fundamentally starts with the issue of questioning God's love. How have you loved us? Not only that, secondly, how does God describe his work in our lives? How is it a display of his love, and what is, it, what is its purpose? What's the goal of that work? And lastly, where do you get the confidence to endure? Where do you get the energy uh, to stick it out? And how is it that God's changelessness guarantees our growth and not our destruction? Okay, those three things you have on one side there the passage, and on the other side uh, the outline. So I want to work through those three things, beginning with how have you loved us? I don't think there's any coincidence that the book begins with this question because. You see there in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, that is the people say, how have you loved us? God declares his love, and yet the people can't think of any evidences of his love. But I want you to look closely. He doesn't just declare his love in the present. He actually says, I have loved you. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it says, I have loved you and love you still. But the people ask, how? How have you loved us? And this question illustrates their unbelief because in the middle of the suffering and the disappointment, what have they started with? Their circumstances. What they see when they look around is hardship, expectations unrealized, and they come to conclude, well, God must not love us. After all, he's not restored us. 
The son of David, he promised, isn't ruling over us. The nations aren't streaming in to worship on Mount Zion. The mountains aren't dripping with sweet wine. And on and on and on it goes. And for them and for us, I want to submit to you, verse 2 is the question. It is the question that plagues every human heart. And I want you to listen to where it comes from. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered slightly up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. A terrible lie would come into the world and it would never leave. It would live on in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I want to rewind for just a few minutes. And incidentally, whether you're a Christian or not, this is foundational stuff to the way that you look at the world. Students, this is where worldview begins and everything comes back to it, okay? The story of the Bible began in a garden with God, humanity, and animals, the whole creation in perfect harmony. But the doubt, does God really love me? How how can I be sure? That doubt that crept into humanity's heart resulted in disobedience, resulted in disarray, ultimately destruction. And this beautiful fabric, this beautiful tapestry that God had woven together began to unravel. Sin produced a fear reflex that led humanity to run away and hide from him. And in the garden, doubting God's love actually caused Adam and Eve to look around and see the fruit of the tree that God told them to never eat from, not all the trees that he said you can eat from. The doubt and the self-pity caused them to fixate on the one tree that he said, You can't eat from that tree. And as that self-pity grew, as the words of the serpent hissed, poor you, God must not want you to be happy. So did the unbelief. The doubt grew, the unbelief grew, and they began to define their existence by what they lacked, by what they couldn't do. They saw themselves in bondage rather than in freedom, and it was their circumstances that became the defining feature of their life. And humanity has been living and relating that way to God and to one another ever since. You know, facing disappointment or suffering, whether it's losing a spouse to cancer or it's low-level stuff like a child that just won't seem to listen, right? That's regular and everyday stuff, isn't it? I mean, you deal with it constantly. Some of it's high-level, intense suffering, disappointment. Some of it's lower-level everyday, kind of mundane, but we deal with it all the time. How do we respond, though? And the reason I wanted to go back to the story of the garden is because it's so helpful for us in dealing with our own hearts. Because I want you to think about this. What does the average person do when they experience something in their life that causes disappointment or, over time, uh, causes uh, them to be disillusioned with things? How do you cope? How do you cope? The most common response is finding an escape, right? If we're honest, that's most of the time what we do. Getting away so that you can forget about the pain, hiding away so that you can lick your wounds, or my personal favorite, numbing the pain. And you all know what I'm talking about. You know some of the common 
common numbing agents. These are on the, the worse end, okay? Things like alcohol or going further drugs, pornography, gambling. But there are others that may seem a little bit less intense or serious, but TV, eating, sports, the list goes on. We all have those numbing agents. But the irony is, these types of things in uh, psychotherapy and and, uh, other uh, literature, they call them coping mechanisms. Isn't it interesting? They call them coping mechanisms, not endurance mechanisms. Because the goal is not to endure, to stick it out. The goal is to withdraw. The goal is to cope. It's to maintain. It's to deal. Ultimately, though, you're trying to withdraw. You're trying to escape. But here's the thing. In withdrawing, you're actually being consumed by the disappointment. It has taken over your life. In trying to escape the suffering, many times we actually are being conquered by it. Because it's all you think about. It defines you. It's your identity. And ultimately, it consumes you. But let me ask, what if the suffering, what if the times of disappointment or discouragement or outright affliction were God-appointed means to show you his love? What if suffering is the proof? What if it's him answering that question in verse 2? I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Well, go to chapter 3. How have you loved us? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. What if suffering was proof? You see, a fire is an amazing tool. It's multi-purpose, right? It can consume something like a piece of paper. It can melt something like wax, and it can even soften something like a frozen bread roll. That's my uh, way to keep hamburger buns, you know, from having to go back and buy more. I just stick them in the freezer and then have hamburgers, stick them in the microwave, softens them. You learn something new every day. If you didn't know to do that, there you go. But fire can do another thing. It can refine, it can purify. And an example of that would be when an alloy or a compound that contains a precious metal like gold or silver is heated in a fire, the dross, the impurities, are burned off to reveal the precious metal only. See, you start with something dull and ugly, and through the fire, through refining and purification, what comes out on the other side? Something beautiful, something shiny. And Malachi says to the people, God is committed to the work of refining. You won't endure unless you know he's committed to purifying you, because he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. What is fuller's soap? We're not talking about a bar of dial, right? We're talking lie, L-Y-E, which is a chemical that's used to cleanse. And the way it cleanses is by burning away bacteria and impurities. Doesn't it seem crazy, though, to talk as if that is the process that God is working to display his love in our lives? 
but we should all be saying, yes, that does sound a little crazy. Okay? But the Bible's pretty clear in how it describes his commitment to our refining and our purification. The, the pictures it gives us present a compelling case for trusting that God is doing us good. Let me give you a few examples from around the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says this, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, why do we, those of you who are parents, why is it that we as parents understand that principle so readily in connection with our kids? I mean, I love it when I get to do that, say that, beat while I'm saying that, you know, whatever it is. Mine are getting a little too old to do that, so I just yell really loud and hope they get it. But why is it that we understand that with our kids, but in contrast, we are sometimes clueless, stunned, and even offended that we are disciplined as children by our Heavenly Father? See, in suffering, God is fathering us. Hebrews chapter 5, although he was a son, this is Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus suffered as he learned. Now, how would we think we could avoid it? Jesus suffered as he learned. God is not only our father who lovingly disciplines us, but he's our teacher who yearns for us to come into wisdom. And so in suffering, God is teaching us. From Psalm 100, the the writer says, It is he who made us and not ourselves. A classic pain that you and I experience as we follow Jesus is that we are not the makers of ourselves. And yet that concept, think about this, that concept flies in the face, could not more fly in the face of our our cultural values and our cultural mandates. Because what does our culture teach us? The goal is to be what? Self-made. The Bible teaches, though, that we are not self-made. We are God-made. It starts on page 2. And the implication runs all the way through to the end. Pain is implicit in the act of molding one thing into another or of sculpting, of chipping away one thing conformed into the shape of something else. Talk to an artist. Talk to a sculptor. If, if, the, if the piece of clay or the canvas or whatever, or the, the, the piece of stone that is chiseling away, if that were a human being, that, the work of that would hurt, right? In suffering, God is shaping us. He's making us. Now lastly, related to Malachi chapter 3, listen to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them, For what else can I do because of my people? See, silver is fired seven times to ensure that all the dross is removed. So before Tiffany can sell it on Fifth Avenue for thousands of dollars, it has to endure the fire of purification seven times. And if firing silver produces beautiful jewelry, how much more will we, images of God, How much more beautiful and glorious will we be on the other side of the fire of suffering? 
Paul must have had this in mind when he told the Ephesians. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. See, in suffering, God is refining us. Now, I want to tell you uh, just a minute. Some of you know me better than others. uh, But those of you that don't, just to share a little bit of my story of the journey uh, that God took me on through this refining fire of disillusionment. And it was some 10 years ago, it struck me this week, I, I couldn't believe it thinking back, it was some 10 years ago now that my professional missionary career ended in utter failure, albeit unexpectedly, because the closest to failure I had ever gotten was a C in trigonometry. That was it. But I had my and my family's life all planned out, and it was a good plan too. We'd be career missionaries. We'd be seen as amazingly godly because of what we were willing to give up and spend our lives in another country. See, I was never going to be accused of doing something insignificant. By golly. Right? Then God sent me a message. Hello, McFly, or in my case, Winfrey. That dates me a little bit. Students, if you don't know McFly, it's from Back to the Future. Go watch it this afternoon. It's a great movie. But he sent me this message, hello, Winfrey, I'm in charge. I know the plan. I'm in the lead. You follow me. So after less than a year out, we return to Florida, and I find myself unemployed and angry and broken. But here's the thing. As I've looked back and reflected, the time overseas wasn't the fire. The fire actually came next. The couple of years following the failure I, who had the future all planned out suddenly, and now I had no idea what the future was. My wife and I were working, our kids were growing, life was happening, but that was it. And the truth is, I was consumed with bitterness, cynicism toward the church. I had written the church and vocational ministry off. God was losing a first team All American. Oh well. His loss. Maybe he'll learn eventually. (laughs) But see, something happened over time, though. Something happened over time. A friend invited me and my family to a church where the gospel was preached in a way that was new, refreshing, healing, different. The Spirit began to take me from being consumed with and whining about my circumstances to being humbled by the grace and the beauty of Jesus. And I began to see this time of suffering, of affliction, of, of massive disappointment as God doing me good. He sustained my endurance, which of course went up and down, because he didn't suddenly and magically make things easier on me, right? I still struggled. It was still hard. But the good news was he was chiseling, he was pruning, he was conforming, and man, did it hurt. But it was good. And now, I I just turned 37, so of course, what do I know? I don't pretend to understand or have answers for for many of the trials that many of you have faced or are currently right now in this very moment facing. But what I've come to believe is from the fires God has taken me through, this truth. He is committed to making us into something glorious. And the obedience of faith, okay, it's obedience, but it's born of faith. That obedience of faith is learned through the fire of refinement. I don't think you can learn it anywhere else. And I wouldn't believe that 
unless he had thwarted my pride and led me into the valley of those years. You've got two options. When you're facing suffering or disappointment or disillusionment, you can escape or you can endure. The option you take depends on your perspective on the fire, however. If your assumption is that the fire will consume you, then you'll want to flee as fast as you can. Ah, this hurts. I'm burning. Let me get out. Right? But if you believe that God is doing you good, if you're convinced he's refining you, then you'll endure, you'll persevere, you'll stick it out. And so the question becomes, and this is what I want to finish with there in your worship folder, where do you get the confidence and the energy? Where's the fuel come to endure? Well, the promise given in Malachi, as well as throughout the entire Bible, is that a day of fire is coming. And for some, look at Malachi chapter 4 there in your worship folder, beginning in verse 1. For some, the day will be a fire of consumption, of judgment, and condemnation. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Those who do not fear the Lord, who do not honor him as the creator and the sustainer of the universe, for them that day will be terrible. And I'd be remiss if I didn't warn you, if you're here and don't consider yourself a Christian, or if you're here and you fear something or someone else more than God, or maybe you don't fear him at all because you don't believe he really exists. Wherever you are, let me call on you to repent. Let me call on you to turn to him, fear him, and serve him. He can be trusted because he's good and his love endures forever, as we've sung about already today. He can be trusted because he doesn't change. He desires you to turn to him. Now, how can you know? How can you know in turning to him that he won't consume you? Well, there's two reasons. Listen to these two verses. First from chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, because of that, in other words, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And then from chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name, this is on the day that is coming, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. First, the Lord says, if you fear his name, meaning if you honor him as supreme and you cry out for mercy, if you ask him to show you, how have you loved me? Malachi says, The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And of course, this refers to none other than Jesus Christ. The sun, S-O-N, the sun of righteousness, who indeed rose on the third day because he endured the consuming fire of God's wrath for sin as well as the darkness of hell itself. And when he arose, he set off a chain reaction of new creation. And he's now saying, behold, I am making all things new. All things. And that starts with you and I and our hearts, our lives, our city, ultimately our entire world. See, if you live in the light of the Son of Righteousness, you'll have the confidence you need to endure any fire. Jesus 
as the Son of Righteousness, does a couple of things. First, he gives light where there is darkness. When you have light, you can see, right? He brings sense and meaning out of absurdity and insanity. But not only that, the second thing implied by his being a rising sun is that he brings security where there's danger. When it's dark, there's more danger because you can't see the path in front of you, right? You might fall off a cliff, you might trip over a log, you might bang your head against a branch, but when the sun finally rises, you can move out with security, right? That's the way it is with Jesus. He points the way to go again and again. He shows up the danger and the foolishness of many choices before we even make them. And he guards us. He guards us from the many evil forces that, that have power only in the dark. So when Jesus comes into the world, he comes as a son. He is light in the darkness of confusion and ignorance and skepticism. He gives a fixed point of truth. Go back to the beginning of what I said. Theology matters. What you believe and know about God matters because it's a fixed point of truth. It grounds you. It stabilizes you. It anchors you. Every standard seems to have come unglued or seems to be coming unglued around us. And with the light of the sun of righteousness, you're not swept away in that. You're fixed. You're anchored. Lastly, he's a son of righteousness. The beams that radiate out from him bring healing. They make things right. Crooked things become straight. Jesus gave a sneak peek of this work in his earthly ministry. See, he didn't heal every person around him, but in the new heavens and earth, he will. But he's given us a sneak peek. He's giving us a taste. But not only that, there's another reason. There's another reason you can trust him. And it's what made it possible for the Son of Righteousness to come in the first place. Because he says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O children of Jacob. His character, his word, his ways do not change. And that gives us, or should give us at least, comfort and confidence. What sort of changelessness would ensure that if you fear his name, you won't be consumed? What kind of changelessness fosters trust that I know the fire is to refine me and not destroy me? Here it is. It's an unwavering commitment to keeping covenant. Because God says... I have loved you, and I don't change. I keep my word. Jesus Christ, who was consumed instead of you and me, it's his blood that seals and confirms God's covenant promises. We sang about it in that song, The Love of Christ. The surety. The surety. That's the confidence we have. The surety that sealed and confirmed the covenant was the blood of Jesus. God doesn't change because he can't change. Otherwise... Jesus' blood was worthless. And when you know, when your soul has tasted of God's covenant-keeping love displayed in the Son of Righteousness, then and only then will you have confidence and strength to endure whatever fires you're facing. Whether they're full of disappointment or they're just downright affliction, God says, I'm refining you. I'm purifying you. I don't change. I'm committed to you Because the Son of Righteousness spilled His blood and sealed the covenant. And brothers and sisters, the people who really believe that would really witness 
in a profound, in a powerful way to the city and the community, and things would change. So let's pray that God would make us just those kinds of people this morning. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe once again of your mighty work of salvation for us, that you would endure the fire of God's wrath, that you would undergo the darkness, that you would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and hear nothing but silence in return? So that you might equip us, you might empower us, you might fuel us for the work of being purified and being refined. As we sang earlier, oh Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Help our unbelief to believe, to know that you're doing us good uh, by the disappointments, by the trials, by the, by the afflictions that we face because it's in those that we come to cling to you more diligently, more strongly, more, more, more permanently. And that in, in those moments you would change our hearts and that we in turn might be agents of change and reconciliation and peace to our community, in our relationships, in our families, everywhere you take us, that you might be honored and glorified. O Christ, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, Amen. As you go, the promise of the gospel, remember, is that a heart that is melted by and and then filled with the blazing glory of that love that never could from them be removed. If you go from here, you believe that, you have confidence in that, it will give you the strength to endure, but the promise of the gospel is, it will also give you the strength to go love in the same way that you've been loved. So go and love through that endurance. There's someone out there you need to love today in that way. So go find them and begin to practice that. And as you go, go with this promise that he goes with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.